This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Sam Delaney, and this is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the usual bollocks. My guest this week is one of the world's leading brain surgeons, Dr. Rahul Jandial. Dr. Rahul is a dual-trained neurosurgeon and neurobiologist who's globally famous in his profession for taking on seemingly impossible cancer operations and overseeing groundbreaking research into the brain at his Jandial Clinic in L.A., and also through his charity, he travels the world carrying out brain surgery and teaching in poor, under-resourced countries in places like South and Central America and Southeast Asia. That's right, he's basically some sort of superman. Plus, he's handsome and charming as well. It's ridiculous. It'd actually be a bit annoying if he wasn't quite so humble. I read his new book, Life on a Knife's Edge, which not only covers his dramatic life in the operating theatre, but also the lessons he's learned from talking to people coming towards the end of their life. He also examines his own life from a mental health perspective. I mean, this is a man who makes life or death decisions every day while literally getting his hands on other people's brains. How do you cope with pressure and stress like that? I wanted to know, so I asked him on the podcast. He said, yes, and you're about to hear our conversation. I really hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed taking part in it. Raul, welcome to The Reset. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for including me. Uh, your book is fascinating and moving. Tell me a bit about why you decided to write this type of book. It wasn't a straight out plan. I, I thought I was going to write about just the general experience in the operating room. I had this idea about OR Confidential sort of as a, as a partner to Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential and Exposé, but the editor at uh, at Penguin thought there could be more, um, not just a reveal, but sort of a 
a tearing down of your own facade, you know, to share your own thoughts as you evolve through the journey with patients. So it turned out to be this sort of psychological memoir of my own life, as well as the lessons I was learning through the care of patients and just trying to tie it all together so people can get something out of it. And a lot of times it's the stories that have the wisdom. There aren't always specific takeaways, but there are those things as well. Absolutely. And you really get that sense of the sort of psychological memoir. Uh, You're very brutally honest about yourself, about the fact that a lot of your career and achievements were driven by ego and narcissism. But at the same time, what seems to have prevailed is is the humbling impact of your dealings with these patients who very often are at the end of their lives. Yeah, I think it's fair. It's an it's an evolution in my life as well. Um, driven to be better at my craft, better than other surgeons, there wasn't a conflict because the better I was, the better the patients did. And um, But as time went on, and now I'm 48 years old, and uh, just the sheer volume of people I have met, over 10,000 people I have met, um, over several thousand skulls I have opened, and the journeys before and after, I just thought, wait a second, there's something here. This is a masterclass in humanity. And I didn't see many other surgeons or physicians uh, digging that deep into it. And I wanted people to know that there was some complexity here in a hospital uh, that could reveal a lot about humanity in general. And maybe from a fresh perspective, that wasn't philosophy or religion. Um, I'm really interested in the effect that ambition has on people and where that Mm. comes from. You, You write about. You know, you write in the book about how partly it was to do with, you know, things to do with your past, your childhood, your experiences when you were starting out in education, but also some of it's just hardwired. You know, obviously you're operating at a very extreme level that most of us don't, you know, can't can't almost relate to. But I think everyone in, in all walks of life, sometimes ambition and ego can be our undoing. Where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, pressure and stress is a personal dimension. So whether you're fighting with your lover or about to go in with a, into a meeting with a boss that you think is going to be contentious, that feeling, those chemicals and that electricity inside your skull is similar to um, pilots, surgeons. So I, I think it translates well for everybody without being a brain surgeon, mm. uh, without being somebody who's had their own struggles. But I, the more I think about it, it's insecurity that originally drove me, um, but not insecurity to the point where it was um, preventative or stifling of ambition as well. So I think a bit of insecurity is good. I don't, I don't know if everybody needs to have great self-esteem from the start. Sometimes you have to build it. Sometimes you have to take some fumbles and take some hits and cultivate it. Uh, that is the story of life that, Inside our skulls, things aren't static. It's more of an ecosystem, a garden of living, throbbing neurons that are different every day, different after this conversation. So where do you want to take it? And in the beginning, it was just trying to prove people wrong, um, those who underestimated me. So that was more of an immature drive, but it got me to medical school. It got me into surgery and then started, you know, my sons were born. It started a change for me that the drive started to be, Uh, to care for people better, to leave a better example for my children. Still ambition, probably the same reward systems going off in my brain, but more cathartic also and more at peace with why I was doing the things I was doing. I'm I'm still very ambitious 
it's just evolving into more meaning and purpose rather than achievement. I'm 48 years old and I feel lucky to have uh, these revelations and these reflections this young in my life. I think many don't have it. I've seen it in my cancer patients, not all of them, but when they see that finish line getting closer, uh, it changes them and um, many for the better, not all. And some of those stories, uh, some of those stories I share in the book. So from your own personal experiences and, and those that you've learned from, from being around your patients, mm. do, you know, do you think that those of us who, who see ambition or ego driving us forward, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a happier or more content or more peaceful place to be if you can just let go of that to, to some, find a way of letting go of it to some degree? To some degree or harnessing it there's a term uh, I like sublimation. It's a bit esoteric. It's a chemistry term, but also applies to psychology where you can take drives inside you that could be destructive, but to put them to use. I like high pressure situations. I like being in charge. I like having the weight of the world on my shoulders. Now that could have gone in a lot of different directions. It just turned out that that works really well in the operating room. It doesn't work so well in the clinic. I, I'd be a horrible pediatrician. I'd be dismissive. Oh, it's just a cough. <laughs> and so I selected myself into a place where uh, my intensity uh, could be delivered for, for good. And I think that's the, the nuance with ambition, that if it's unbridled, uh, eventually all you do is eat yourself up. But if you can sort of work with it, evolve with it, I think I'm in a better place for it. But when it started, it was definitely, um, it was definitely self-serving and now it's for the service of others. Let me put it this way. This is a podcast about mental health and it's, mm. about, and, it, and it's largely aimed at, at men who might've in the past been very cynical about, you know, examining their inner selves and, and feeling that they can, you know, that, that therapy or discussion can possibly help them with their moods or, or what have you. As someone who does what you do, have you been cynical about that in the past? Because you have a, a clinical understanding of the brain and the way it works. Extremely cynical. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't grow up thinking, you know, talking about my feelings or even taking the time to turn my attention inward to analyze my feelings, even in private was not a skill or something I did. Then I go into a discipline where we never could, we, we could never even act weak or let alone tired after doing 48 hour or 40 hour shifts. Um, so I was definitely in the group that thought mental health was something for people who were weak. And my perspective on that has changed completely. And I think the global perspective has changed completely with this last year where we're all under tremendous stress. Now, what do we do with it? Um, do we ignore it? Uh, I think that works okay for some, but some people, I, I don't want to give a formulaic response that applies to everybody out there. And I don't want to break people into men and women because I, I see individual skulls. And then I also see people who are, you know, different versions of their former self, right? Like what last night, if you hit the lottery, you change last night. If you've been assaulted, you change You're you're different from who you were, but mental health. Now it surprises me that it hasn't been the top priority because when patients don't have mental health, they don't take care of their heart health. You know what I mean? So we've been talking about heart health and, and beauty for so long for decades 
yet neglected um, neglected that attention to the flesh inside our skulls, to that white glistening flesh that gives us happiness and joy, that gives us art and humor, and that also can be maddening. And in its extremes, some people commit suicide. So that's a wide range of uh, of sort of a vista in your life. And it needs to be tended to. It needs to be thought about. It needs to be cultivated. It needs to be prioritized for yourself, uh, not to be a better person for the other person or for your job, but um, to know that you have control over your own life to some degree and that the more you work at it, the more you work at the concept of emotional regulation, the better you'll be the next time you face a struggle. So you're, it's sort of a development much like you would develop for a marathon or much like children learn to walk, but they are unable when they come out of the womb. So there are changes happening. We recognize for, for babies and for adolescents, but then we quit on that brain work, if you will, that mind work when we turn 20, 25 and say, Hey, we're, we're all locked in. Let's see how life goes. Actually uh, the work should never stop. Um, and that those are the lessons I've been learning now uh, from the stresses of my job and the stresses of my life. That's really interesting that you say, you know, 25 years old and you sort of think, right, that's me. I'm so that's exactly what I felt. That's exactly how I felt. I, I, I feel that my twenties, I think that your twenties are perhaps your most arrogant decade. Right? <laughs> you, that's when you sort of arrive at the point where you think, yeah, okay, that's yeah. good. Now I've worked it all out. Let's go. I've done my training for life. And then it exactly. takes, and, and then similar to you, it took me to my forties to start thinking, actually, I might have been wrong. So yeah. your thirties, you're just knackered because of your kids and your career. And then your forties, you come out a little bit of breathing space and think, actually, I, I might have been wrong about almost everything. Yeah. Or you take some hits that you can't control or you, yeah. you get situations where confidence and bravado isn't enough. Um, yeah. And then you say, wait a second, I'm not bulletproof. Um, so how do I make myself more psychologically? I'm going to use this word that I'm still struggling with resilient. Yeah. It's been overused. Uh, I, I hate it in some ways, but the more I try to understand what it was, I, I, I saw that it's a powerful, powerful word for people, especially now. And it's not a moment of arrival. It's not like you're resilient or not. It's not you're tall or short. It's not, it's not, it's not a category. It's not a trait. It's a process. It's a journey. So there's two types of psychological resilience. One is systemic resilience. That's whatever we've built up having lived through life. That's sort of what you bring to the struggle, what you bring to the fight. Uh, but there's also, if you haven't, if you're not bringing much to the fight or the fight is too strong, like this last year, or maybe you've gone through a really harrowing experience and no life, no life journey could have prepared you for that. There's still processive resilience. It's what the fight will bring out in you. It's what the struggle will bring out in you. So wherever you are, if you're coping well, great. If you're not, be optimistic because this current struggle uh, could be the thing that lets you blossom and lets you flourish again in some way. This could be the moment where you're growing by putting up a fight and dealing and coping and not just surrendering to negative thoughts and, and destructive habits. So I, to me, that's empowering that way. I, f I found patients to be frustrated with sometimes these, these golden nuggets, if you will, 
because when they didn't work, like do one, two, three, and they're like, well, I still feel miserable. Well, you were just given a cancer diagnosis. It's okay. You know, that's natural. Mm. It's hard to be equipped to deal with that perfectly. <laughs> and so if you, if you give that latitude, I think that leaves people more room to personalize um, mental health. Because one of the, the bad things, I think, about the sort of new mental health openness and movement or mental health industry, as some people would call it, is right. that we're, we're surrounded by messages telling us that, you know, you can be anything you want to be and all it takes is a positive mindset, right? And that, I think, is having a negative impact, funnily enough, because exactly as you say, you know, you, you can't say as you diagnose people, and you tell people, yeah, I'm afraid you've got cancer on your brain. But listen, just stay positive and it will probably go away. Yeah, it, it depends on the challenge, right? If you be positive, if you're frustrated over no reason, there's no external thing tripping you up, but you are filled with anxiety, maybe that applies there. For my patients, I think we have to look head on at the, at the thing they're facing. And what we do is we try to compartmentalize. So every scan is, is the tumor back? Is it bigger? Has it spread? I mean, they're hit every three months with unimaginable stress, like, you know, mortality, you know, future fate, these kind of things. And so what we try to do is have a really bad week when they get that slip saying brain MRI this week, let's just have it be shitty because it's heavy. But the 11 weeks in between until the next scan, let, let's try to be positive and get the most out of life because you have to do that because the finish line is now in sight. So the, the days are more precious and then the stress is immense. So how do they cope with that? So we try to come up with ways where, hey, let's, let's have a bad week, but then let's have 11 good weeks. And that having that sort of uh, release valve in there, having that you're allowed to just melt down. You're allowed to bang your head against the wall. You're allowed to be frustrated. You're allowed to scream. It's natural. That doesn't mean you're not mindful or doesn't mean you're not resilient. It doesn't mean you're not uh, positive. It just means you're dealing um, and you're coping in the ways, the best ways you can. I think that I've, I've found that to be the best approach because that doesn't leave anybody guilty or feeling like they fell short uh, of solutions that others have quickly uh, grabbed hold of. It's, uh, it's a, a metaphor for, for life as a whole, not just the extreme situation of cancer. I think there's a, a line you write right at the end of the book, which is, you know, you save and learn to savor the, the moments of joy and happiness, but work out a process for dealing with the tougher times. I'm paraphrasing you write more eloquently than that, but thank you, brother. <laughs> but, but I think I read that and I thought, well, that's, that really is the best we can all do in life day to day, whatever's going on. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, so where I was coming at that was um, first of all, thank you. You're the only one that's pointed that out. That's a very personal line for me because some of the advice that patients were getting, or I was reading about in different books was, you know, just be even keel, you know, sort of don't get too excited, you know, don't get too depressed, just be even keel. You know, I don't think cancer patients want that. I don't think when you, so when they have years, but not decades, uh, 
actually, you know, party like a rock star when you're having a party and you're in between and you're like cancer's in remission and you're at your kid's birthday party. No need to be even keel. Let that kite out. Yeah. But then, but then brace and cope and have a process through those different scans and different things we're going to do that are going to be stressful. So I I say, I say, you know, have a process for the different. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Difficult things. Um, endure them if you must, but let it loose too in between. You know, I, I don't want people to have a blunted life experience. I just want them to not have the difficult times spill into the, the precious days where they're supposed to be having good times as well. What are the most common reflections or themes that you see in people who are coming towards the end of their lives when they get hopefully perspective? The, the, the quality of life thing is a feature in our cancer trials where you see, you look at, does a tumor shrink, how long the patient lives and how do they rate their quality of life? Many of them um, have said, I don't know why I needed to have a cancer diagnosis before making quality of life a priority, mm-hmm. enjoying the small things, you know, that's easy to. For people, I'm just giving you guys the insight. Um, that a cancer diagnosis, not necessarily a, you know, when they have, again, years, not if, when it's a few months ahead, that's a very different scenario. But when, when you think you have decades and now you're being told it's more likely years, uh, it changes them. And again, many of them, they, they, they sort of quickly let go of the fuss. They, they push some people away. They push certain habits away. They, they, they change um, because now every day becomes precious. And so I always thought, you know, why is quality of life a priority only when you realize you're going to be dying? Because mm. we're all dying. Um, why can't it be a quality of life is a priority when you're 48 and hopefully you have decades to go? That's the main lesson that I see from all of them is making quality of life, however you define it for yourself a priority now, not just after a calamity. Um, Let me ask you about the the sort of practical ways in which you have coped with the stress and pressure, unimaginable stress and pressure for most of us. You come home at the end of a working day, having been inside someone's skull in a life or death situation. A lot of us, you know, in less pressurised jobs, coping all sorts of damaging ways, you know, 
Right. Uh, how have you coped with that? How do you, in a very sort of practical way, how do you come home and unwind and switch off? Well, um, I had kids and I knew when I was coming home too revved up from an intense day. First thing is I wouldn't just come, you know, rushing through the door. Mm. I needed to sort of work it out a little bit uh, alone, usually just sitting in the car, listening to music. I find music takes me to a place I wanted to. Based on which music I choose, I can sort of modify my mood. Uh, sometimes I like it to be emotional, to work through a, a struggling child who had surgery. Sometimes I, you know, I listen to rap music to get the energy up. I wrote parts of this book, um, you know, uh, listening to different types of music to help me set the cadence on my, on my laptop. But <clears throat> separating myself and having some time in the car before I came and come into the home was one. Uh, number two is, um, you know, I use a breathing technique. I know it's not what most people think from a you know guy with a tattoo who's a surgeon, but there's biology behind it. And so I use that in the operating room. If there's a maneuver that's challenging or I run into, into an anatomy that's unfamiliar because the cancer's eaten the body up in different ways. Um, the thing you want to avoid is hyperventilation. You will give yourself a panic attack and everything that comes with it by just hyperventilating. Um, Cause really you're only supposed to be breathing faster if you're also making more carbon dioxide from your muscles churning. So if you're not running and you're breathing faster, you're just messing yourself up. Right. But in the operating room, <clears throat> sometimes fear and panic can creep in. And so I've learned to just control my breathing. First of all, just right through the nose, three seconds in, three seconds out. And that's my built-in sedative, if you will. Mm. It doesn't ma that doesn't lead me to the solution. It doesn't lead me to the crisis management, but it puts me in the place that's optimal for me to really, really be able to question whether these emotions and feelings are, um, should be allowed, should be, should have a place in my, in my, um, in my thoughts. So the intersection of thought and emotion is most refined biologically when you control your breathing and you avoid hyperventilation in a stressful time. But other than that, you know, on a, you know, come home, work out, throw the ball, you know, play with the kids, all that stuff too. But I always felt like I needed a portal to get there. I, I, you know, it's, that was to be enjoyed. It wasn't, it wasn't the thing that was going to help me uh, get in the right mind frame. I had to separate myself, chill out, um, get my breathing right, take a moment for myself in the car and then go in and then and transition into having fun with my sons. Uh, I have three teenage sons now. They're younger when I'm describing this. So those have been my techniques that I've learned. Uh, but I like to do things that what there's, there's a biological basis. You know, there's a lot of like pop psychology. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I like reading it, but a lot of it is like, when you look at puppies, you feel happy. I get that. Like that's, <laughs> That's neuroscience also, but I, I need to, I, I like to see where the emotional brain and the cognitive brain, there's actually branches where the neurons intersect like true two tree canopies that, you know, intertwine. And the more you work at work at that, the more branching happens at a microscopic level. You can actually take a you know, microscope to it and see it. So when I have those like sort of uh, anatomical or cellular examples I believe more in the approach and that's also an advantage, as you know. Let, let me ask you about addiction. A lot of us, myself included in the past, dealt with the sort of pressure and strain of when you talk about a portal between work and home, mine, mine used to be going to a pub. 
and drinking several beers in order to do that. And that's obviously very, very common. Um, and that's a lot of people's portal, but ultimately that's destructive. Can you tell me a little bit about addiction from um, a, a biological point in, in the brain? You know, are we, are some of us hardwired for it? Is it, is it, is there a physical manifestation in our brains that, that sort of lends itself to addiction, addictive habits? Yeah. And in, for me, I'm generally trying to get away from concepts like concepts like wires because it, right. There aren't any, and it's, it feels <laughs> linear. Yeah. If I start to, you know, we use words like canopy and our branching and pruning to describe what, you know, I see the brain more as a garden. If I, if I could show you a slide with a microscope, you would see uh, that's how the design looks. It's not neatly packed wires by any means, but that said um, we have inclinations and proclivities driven by a lot of things, genetics, age experience. It's a very dynamic system. And when I think about addiction, I, I like to think of reward systems in the brain. And so people, you know, they, they get these simple binary things like inflammation is good or inflammation is bad or, you know, ambition is good or bad or having an addictive personality is good or bad. But they're really two sides of a coin or a double edged sword. So what gets the cancer patients up to go to get chemotherapy or to come to the hospital are the same electrical and chemical things going on in your skull in your in, in the in the garden of your brain. If they're, if they're dialed too high, those are the ones that lead to addiction. So the, those systems are all about a thermostat, if you will. Um, there's chasing something for a reward that's positive. That's, that's what gets us up in the morning. That's that, those same, same things get us up when we're tired, get us to be patient when we're stuck on the tube or on a freeway. Those, those things are good too. But when you start bringing in exogenous chemicals, and you're not dial, you're not controlling that dial, and you've turned that that control over to an external chemical. Then your you, your thought cannot control it. Your thought cannot set that tone. And when it, when it becomes rampant, it becomes addictive. Um, and there's, you know, from a hospital, I've seen the wide range of addiction. I've seen heroin addicts come in, get a thigh infection bad ones have their legs amputated then they shoot on the other side i mean so it goes it goes wow again it's a spectrum of addiction as, as well mm. um but i worry that we use the word addiction too commonly now i'm addicted to the telly i'm addicted to my phone not really you have a you're you're you have a habit but addiction is really where you're starting to destroy yourself and the things around you and you're not able to manage it because really the the habit is tripped up your reward system to where your thought can't come in and say, Hey, listen, this is just messing you up, man. Usually you have some influence and we try to cultivate that as we get older, but an addiction is where you, you can't actually, you can't actually break the thing that's going on the drive to get the drug and the effect the drug has that's there's a part of you that you've lost control of. Um, so that to me is the way I conceptualize addiction on a spectrum, but also the, the jagged edge of, of our reward system that gets us up in the morning and gets us to do good things as well. 12 step recovery. It, you know, the first step is, um, accepting that you've released control, which, mm -hmm. uh, appears from what you just said to, to be 
quite correct in it from a biological medical sense as well. You've lost control right. and that's what defines an addiction where you've just no, like even you may have rational thoughts telling you to stop, but they have no influence over your behavior. Yeah. Perfectly said. Yeah. You're thinking it, you're thinking it's the last hit. Every hit is the last hit. I think Joe Biden's son, um, president Biden, excuse me, son, uh, mentioned something about crack cocaine. I mean, just startling his memoir that came out and how every time he smoked cocaine, it was always like, okay, this is going to be the last one. So you're trying, but you just, you don't have that influence. And to me, that's frightening uh, to think that you surrendered yourself or something has taken hold that you can't actually break. So I'm impressed when people break addiction. I'm impressed when you look at different countries that say, hey, we don't just want to take a, a medical approach. Uh, what drives us uh, to those highs and what um, breaks us from the control of those things is more than just biological. So I think the programs that have worked well, it, there's therapy, there's compassion, uh, maybe there's decriminalization. Um, there's just a lot of things that go into uh, getting that person to have that say, say over their own mind again. Right? There's no one way that's going to work for everybody. We're not yet at the stage, though, where a guy like you can get inside our brains and make a few tweaks to break that cycle. Actually, it's surprisingly close. That's interesting. Uh, so there's, a, there's this field called, you know, mind surgery. And so brain surgery is you know, blood clots and nail guns and tumors. It's physical or mechanics. Yeah. But um, there's this field of deep brain stimulation where these think of like pacemakers for the heart. Well, they're pacemakers for the brain. And they usually go in about seven centimeters here towards your nose into the emotional brain. And you can actually, you know, you can actually uh, address OCD, obesity, depression, uh, in some patients, just like with the flip of the switch underneath the clavicle. Wow. Yeah. So that's a little bit on the fringe, but those are real papers out there. That's when everything else has failed. A small group of people are going to these academic centers. But with that, again, what, what the extreme example does is it gives us insight that, like, wait a second, there's actually like a little spot you can tickle and your drives change. Yes. But that those same spots, you can tickle it without without putting, you know, me making a hole and putting something in your thought and cultivating self-control and emotional regulation that can also rein those areas in. But it's a it's an electrical thing. It's like, um, you know, it's electrochemical. It's hard to explain. It's like Aurora Borealis. It's not left or right. There are these storms going off in our brains. And if you. Just like if there are waves coming, if you send another wave right at it, sometimes it can just dissipate. You know, you get two waves and they go away. That's the way they're thinking about it is that you, you change the oscillations and frequencies and it changes everything that's ricocheting inside the skull. It's fascinating. And, um, and by some things, we're just in the foothills. I mean, there is at the very least, yeah. I expect a novel about this set in a future <laughs> whereby, whereby very rich people will pay a doctor to go in and implant, you know what I mean? Like I, I need to, I need to learn fluent Japanese. I need I to do. break my addiction. Just get in there, get it into my significant other, and give yeah. me the room. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's got to be something. It's fascinating. It reminds me of um, this craze that there is for microdosing. Uh -huh. You know, which, which again, from what I understand of it, is about 
getting in there and breaking mm-hmm. the constant cycle that drive destructive yes. habits. Well said. So from Steve Jobs, I wrote about in the first book, but uh, how they determine micro or macro dosing is fascinating to me. But I like the the field is more in, in psychedelics. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not like, you know, having a micro pint or it's more mm-hmm. psychedelics that people do. Um, and again, it's it's fascinating that at cancer centers, they're trying mushrooms and psilocybin for patients who are struggling with the fact that they've grown something that is eventually going to lead to their demise. So they have these, I mean, it's, you know, so I'm giving you these examples because I think people think it's a, it is a light conversation, but it's based on something, fa- something fascinating and out there yeah. that I'm seeing that I'm thinking, gosh, people, people should know this. So at major centers like in New York and even in London, um, you know, psilocybin for the treatment of existential gloom in cancer patients. I said, wow, that's wow. fascinating. And now what, what is that? And then they use you, they use ecstasy for marriage counseling. And now they're looking at it for PTSD and it's back to what you're saying. And what we're talking about is for the efficiency, because it's, it's only three pounds, but it takes up 20% of the blood flow for the efficiency. The brain will fall into patterns and habits. And sometimes those habits have got you thinking in a way that you don't want to, or they get in the way of you having a new perspective as something has changed in life. So psychedelics, they work through serotonin, which is also what works with antidepressants, but by a whole different way, they talk, they write about stuff. I mean, these hardcore science journals that I flipped through, like, you know, there's like a, a dissolution of a sense of self, like to be able to step back from what you're doing and thinking and say, gosh, man, is that really how I want to look back at that experience where the trauma is no longer there, but God, I have, every time I wake up, I'm in fear over something that happened a long time ago, or yes, I've got cancer, but it's gripped me so much that I can't enjoy the last moments of my life. I mean, so it doesn't always work. It has to go along with therapy. It's not like, Hey, I took it the next morning. I was good. You know, <laughs> there, there are layers there, but to me, that's fascinating. So much more than like bowels and heart and joints and stuff like that. So I, I don't get why physicians or surgeons go into the, go into the other stuff. I'm like, that's going to get, that's going to get boring quick. <laughs> yeah. This is all really fascinating stuff. People can learn more from life on a knife's edge, which is out now and is wonderful. I can highly recommend it. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Rahul, and uh, have a fantastic day. I never take it for granted that you invited me on here. Thank you very much. There you go, Dr. Rahul Jandial, a man of science, yes, a man who's been driven at times by ego and ambition, by his own admission, but a man who in his 40s has realised that emotional intelligence and personal reflection is essential to a contented and fulfilling life. He's probably one of the smartest men in the world, really. So if self-analysis, self-care and a bit of living in the moment is good enough for him, then it's good enough for the rest of us, surely, right? Anyway, I bloody love talking to him and I can really genuinely recommend his book, which is out now. Remember to sign up to the Reset newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com if you haven't already. I'm also now on Instagram. You can find me at the Reset Sam. I share daily nuggets of wisdom there to help you get your head straight. To be honest, sometimes... It's just pictures of me in the park pulling a dark face. But, you know, might cheer you up a bit. Anyway, have a nice day. Remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. Bye-bye. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.